Well, good morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And I want to remind you that tonight we have our Christmas music program. Don't miss that over in the sanctuary. And But please make plans to join us. We'll have a fellowship afterwards here in the community center. It's going to be a great night of worship and fellowship. And then we also want to make you aware of a need. We still need some some help in our kids' ministry for tonight. So uh, if you are willing to uh, to go back and to uh, serve there, that would be great. And that would be a, a great uh, service to young families who want to come but need child care. So see, see Miss Michelle if you're interested in helping with that. But Luke chapter 1 is where we are at. We're connecting the dots at Christmas. What we're doing is we are spending a few weeks uh, seeing how uh, these people, real people, uh, who uh, we read about in the first Christmas story, and we're spending time in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 through this series, how they took what they knew about God through their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. They took that and then took what they were experiencing and encountering with God in the present, and, and they were able to connect the dots. And they were able to experience God at work in and through their lives. And we want to be a people who aren't just reading about this, Christians reading about this at, from a distance at Christmas time. We want to see the God at work in their life at work in our life. The God connecting the dots for them, connecting the dots for us so that we can experience uh, his work and his power through us. All right, so uh, we are going to be spending time remembering what Christmas is all about. We live in a world that is desperately trying to understand what Christmas is all about and continues to miss it, right? We live in a world uh, that seems to try to connect the dots and tries to pull things together, especially, especially around Christmas time. Do you sense that, right? People, people know that they live in a broken world. They know they live in a world full of poverty and shame and something's wrong, something's Fallen, something's broken, there's strife, struggles. And at Christmas time, isn't it interesting that people, for some reason around this time of year, try to aspire to be something better? Try to be something different. You know, it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. People give more of their time, give more of their money to different causes at Christmas time because there's something uh, inside of human beings at Christmas that know that we as human beings should be doing better. Right? So we aspire to, we just kind of pull ourselves by the bootstraps and try to be better human beings. Is that not what Christmas movies are about, right? In essence, we love, y'all like Christmas movies, right? If not, stop being Ebenezer Scrooge and watch some Christmas movies, all right? Start with that one. That's a good one, Scrooge. Um, but let's do this. Let's have fun this morning uh, on, just think about your favorite Christmas movie, all right? You got it in your mind? Are you ready? Your favorite Christmas movie you like to watch, you like to watch with your family every Christmas, number, just one. On the count of three, we're all going to say it out loud. You ready? One, two, three. Whoa. A lot of Elf fans. A lot of Elf fans. All right, so I heard Elf in there. Uh, anybody say Christmas story? A Christmas story, right? I like that one. Uh, it's uh, A Wonderful Life. Uh, anybody like the classics? It's A Wonderful Life. No? Okay, a couple people. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Anybody like that one? Um, then there's, I'm forgetting what it is. What's the one you like, Rebecca? White Christmas. All right. So some of you like white Christmas. Max, Rebecca was watching that the other day and they had dancing and stuff. Max was like, I don't like this. I was like, me either, Max. Let's go watch Ralphie try to get his gun. All right. Christmas movies are awesome. I love Christmas movies, but in every Christmas movie, what's happening? I want you to think about it. Uh, it's about a family, it's about a town, it's about a person. They're trying to pull it all together, trying to connect the dots, right? Maybe there's been a failure, maybe there's been some type of tragedy, a problem, things look hopeless. There's something trying to threaten what in that movie they would interpret as the meaning of Christmas or Christmas, the Christmas magic. And so they're aspiring uh, to, to find, again, that true meaning or try to find that magic again. 
And in most Christmas stories, you know, the story's unfolding and then something happens and the magic Christmas dust gets sprinkled on top and everything comes back together. The dots connect, right? And, you know, Rudolph gets invited to the cool kid's table, right? And Buddy gets, uh, you know, reunited with his dad and Frosty the Snowman gets reconstituted and Ralphie gets his gun and on and on and on and on. The magic comes back together in the end, right? It all is magical and the music plays and the, and the credits, they, they, they roll and we feel nice and fuzzy and, you know, drink our hot chocolate and feel warm inside. And the, but the problem is, is in the real world, the season ends. The decorations get packed away. The season is gone and you're kind of left wondering, is there more, is there more to life than this? Is there something more transcendent in this life that I haven't been able to piece together? Something higher, something better, something more secure, something more satisfying, something beyond the empty and mundane answers to this life and the reasons that people in this world look to to live this life. And as Christians, we know the answer to that is a resounding yes. A resounding yes. But the tragedy is this, that People all around the world are looking to connect the dots at Christmas, trying to make sense of life. And yet in their sinfulness, they're blinded to the answer that's right there in their faces. It's tragic, tragic irony, right? That everybody's looking to put the dots together at Christmas. And yet the answer is found in the very name that's in the middle of you know, Christmas, the, what we're celebrating right now on people's lips, in the songs that we sing, the signs on, in, in stores that we walk through. The answer is found in under, rightly understanding the person and work of that person, Christmas. And so that's what this series is about. It's about understanding what Jesus did, understanding how to put the dots, connect the dots together to understand the reason for the season, as some of us would say. And so if you're here this morning, maybe this is the first Christmas ever, the first time ever that you're going to connect those dots, that you're going to be saved, that you're going to surrender your life to the Lord. And we pray that that'll happen. And for those of us who, who know Christ, those of us who are following Christ, my, my prayer is that this story will never get old. My, my prayer is that this will never grow stale. And that once again, as we jump back into the Christmas story, that our hearts in a fresh way will continue to fall in love with Jesus and we'll walk with him in a stronger way. Would you stand with your Bibles open? I'll begin to read in verse 30. And then we'll go back and... Begin at 26. It says in verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, or answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray as we walk through this very familiar text... Lord, that in a fresh way, you would remind us what it means to live a life of faith, of surrender, and of worship as we follow the example of an ordinary Hebrew girl in the first century named Mary. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember here, we need to remember at the very beginning of Luke uh, that the first 
a few verses are cluing us in to something that we need to understand when we study God's word, specifically here, Luke's gospel, that what you're reading is a result of an investigative project that doctor, medical doctor Luke, who's a travel companion of Paul, has compiled and put together from as a result of days, weeks, maybe years of him sitting down with eyewitnesses to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote Acts as well. So that's a result of him sitting down with folks who were there in the early part of the church. And all of this written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's meant to be read as history. Never miss that. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we read it as history. This is not something to be read as something that begins as once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. This is a result most likely... And we believe on one of Paul's missionary journeys that he was a companion of of Paul too, specifically when he was there at Caesarea by the sea, when Paul was being uh, held there uh, as a prisoner, that he would have been able to have a conversation with Mary herself. So what you're reading here is a result, most likely, of Luke sitting down with Mary at an old age saying, tell me what happened. And her saying, well, let me go back and begin from the very beginning. So when you read this, make sure you're connecting the dots there, that this is to be read as history. And so let's walk through this glorious announcement, part of history, in two parts, all right? The first is this, very simply, we look at a glorious announcement from a heavenly messenger. A glorious announcement from a heavenly messenger. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from the God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. So this, uh, the language here, the sixth month, it's reaching back uh, to the previous chapter. Remember Elizabeth, uh, she for five months has been at home. Uh, she's rejoicing because she's getting a miracle baby herself, John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And she's been at home for five months celebrating uh, her birth, the, the, the birth of her uh, upcoming son. And so she's getting the nursery ready. She's rejoicing maybe because she has a mute husband as well because Zechariah is there in time out and he can't speak. And so this is the sixth month is, it's like saying this, Elizabeth, you know, she was there for five months. And then in the six months of Elizabeth, Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, the scenes change. And the camera zooms up out of Jerusalem uh, from the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth and up north in an area called Galilee down into a town called Nazareth. And the angel, same angel appears to her younger cousin, Mary, and it scares her. It scares her to be in the presence of this angel. Remember, for one reason, because angels are intense. As precious as precious moments angels are, those aren't how real angels look, all right? Every time an angel shows up, they have to immediately start shouting, don't be afraid, don't die. It's okay. Terrifying, otherworldly, warrior-like, glorious beings. And so Mary certainly would have been shaken up because of that. But the text here indicates that's not really the reason why she's shaken up. She's shaken up by what the angel specifically is saying. Now, why is this greeting that sounds kind and nice? Why is it shaking up this lady named Mary? Well, uh, understanding where Mary's from, understanding a little bit about Mary will give us some insight into that. It says she's from Nazareth. Nazareth is in the middle. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a nowhere town. Nothing special about it. It's ordinary. It's that town that when you're out on a trip and you're on the road and you got to get some uh, snacks and you got to get a drink, you pull off at the next exit and you, there's a Waffle House, a Motel 6 and a gas station. And there's nothing else here but a little green sign with the name of a town on it I don't recognize. That's Nazareth. 
There's nothing special about it. It's ordinary. In fact, it has a reputation about being nothing special. Nathaniel, he's one of the first disciples who are being called in John chapter 1 when he hears about the Messiah's name, Jesus of Nazareth. He backs up and goes, wait a second, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a nowhere town, full of nobodies, and Mary's one of them. She's from this place called Nazareth. In fact, it's such a nowhere town that he has to add Galilee there, Luke does, as he's, again, this historian under the inspiration of the Spirit writing this down, because in the first century when he would have written this, people wouldn't even have known where Nazareth was on a map. He wouldn't have made the map. So he has to say it's in Galilee. And that's where Mary's from. What do we know about her? She's young. She's probably between the age of 13 and 16, probably around 14. That was a common age to get married in those days. It says she's a virgin who's betrothed to a young man of the house of David. That's an important detail we'll see in a second. And so her, she's engaged to a, a guy named Joseph who's from Nazareth as well. Ordinary, right? Poor, just a gangly teenager, barely starting to shave, construction worker, an ordinary guy. And they're betrothed. Different than our engagement today. Engagements today, you take a knee, you give them a ring, kind of a verbal agreement, you make a promise, but it can be, you know, sadly broken off pretty easily. Not in those days. This is a legal engagement. In fact, it took a bill of divorce. That was the only way to end a betrothal. We see that in Matthew. He shows us that. Basically, they're legally married, but not yet enjoying the fruits of marriage until the bride's father one day will give the go-ahead for them to go ahead and consummate the marriage, and there will be a celebration, right? Uh, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and the more, when you have a daughter, you start to understand why some of these things are in place, right? These dads that have control, <laughs> this much control <laughs> over what the bride's going to do. I'm kind of kidding there, but kind of not. <laughs> They're excited to begin a life together, big dreams. Listen, but very little to their name. Very ordinary, poor, nobody special, living in a nobody town. And then this angel, this glorious angel shows up unexpectedly and basically says this, Mary, little Hebrew 14-year-old Mary in Nazareth, the Holy One of Heaven has noticed you, has smiled upon you, has set his favor upon you, has chosen to draw near to you. And it's that kind of attention that freaks her out. Can you imagine today if there was some, we heard some noises outside, a big motorcade of, you know, black, you know, limousines and suburbans, tinted windows come in and there's a bunch of guys in suits and they walk in here, secret service, and they begin to circle the room and they cut me off and they say, hey, sorry to interrupt your, your, your service here, but I'm looking for, and then you fill in your blank. You fill the blank in with your name. How would you feel? Right? And they would say, hey, and they come to your chair and they say, you are wanted in Washington, D.C. There's a special meeting later today. Let's go. We're taking you there. You'd be going, why, why me? This doesn't make, why all this attention? Why is the most powerful nation in the world wanting to have a, a, a meeting with me in the White House in the Oval Office, right? That, the normal reaction would be me. Why me? So multiply that an infinite amount of time and that times. And that's the way that, again, this backwoods, ordinary girl from Nazareth feels as the holy God of heaven, the almighty God is gazing in her direction, is giving her his undivided direct attention and delivering this message with this title spoken over her life at the very beginning of the announcement, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And that's what puzzled her, that the fact that she's being visited by this heavenly messenger, and it's that word favored there, it, it puzzles her, she, it, it, take, it, it shakes her up. What can help us understand you know, some important things here is to understand that this word favor is the same word grace that's used in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Same word. 
All right, in him we have redemption of sins through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So th- that helps us to, to, to draw that correlation between old favor to one and the word grace that's used for grace. And for the rest of the New Testament, that's talking about the kindness of God being lavished out on sinners who are undeserving of his grace and his love and his forgiveness to, to draw that connection. And that's the same word. It helps us understand some things because this favored one phrase has been used by people for centuries and centuries and centuries to turn Mary into somebody that she's not. Mary is not sinless. Mary does not do anything to earn God's favor. She's a godly young lady. She faithfully attends the synagogue. She listens to the word of God being shared. She's a godly young lady. She's a faithful example to learn from. But listen, she's not a divine woman we pray to. She's an example of faith. She's not an object of faith. She's a recipient of grace. She's not a dispenser of grace. She needed a savior like we needed a, like we need a savior. All right. So before we're before you're done with this story, you follow her story on throughout this chapter, and you'll see her singing a song where she's declaring her need for a personal Lord and Savior. Savior. She is in tune with her own brokenness. It's wrong to come along and to prop her up as a as a superwoman that she would feel uncomfortable being in that position about. So basically, what does she bring to the table? The same thing we need to bring to the table when it comes to uh, salvation. What do we bring to the equation? We bring the problem. We bring the need to be saved, right? And she brings that as well. She's shaken up by that. She's shaken up by the, by the kindness that God is lavishing on her. She's, she's shaken up by the announcement that she's favored in the sense that we should be shaken up by the truth that we have experienced the grace of God, the unbelievable kindness of God that's lavished over our life forever and ever and ever if we're in Christ Jesus. We should never get over that. The same way it shakes her up, it should shake us up. That's why we sing amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? That's why we sing, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. This grace is glorious. This grace is amazing, but it should should always puzzle us. And then if that's not enough, the angel shares the news that God's plan, think about this, to lavish his grace on sinners like her and sinners like us will actually involve her in a very special way. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Amen. The Lord will give, I'll go ahead and read this part too. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there shall be no end. In other words, uh, here it is. Mary, you are a recipient of the grace of God, and here you're being commissioned to do a great work for God. And this is what it is. Mary, you're going to have a son and his name is Jesus. Joseph gets an explanation that his name is Jesus because that's exactly what he's going to do. It's a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which means God saves. He's getting a name that describes exactly what he's coming to do. He's coming to save sinners. And then that next part is something that would have made her leap for joy. I mean, she's a devoted Hebrew young girl. She would have gone to synagogue. She would have sat there and listened and, and her eyes widened in, in, in anticipation for the Messiah. Those old prophecies, Messianic prophecies would have been read. Specifically the prophecies about Jesus coming or the Messiah coming and sitting on the throne of David. This next part, that next part would have excited her. 
And what she's saying, what, what she's hearing is this. Listen, Mary, the son that you're going to have, his name is Jesus, with the earthly father, Joseph, right? Joseph being in the line of David. He's, this is going to be the fulfillment of the promise that's made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel. We read about it and promised him three things, an everlasting throne, an everlasting house, and an everlasting kingdom. And so she's connecting the dots. Think about what's going through the mind of this young Hebrew girl as she is hearing, listen, Jesus, your son will be the one who sits on that throne. That throne that has not been occupied, you're under the heel of the Roman government and you've been longing for that throne to be occupied with a Messiah, with the one who will rule over an everlasting kingdom and you're gonna have the son who's gonna sit on that throne. He will be the fulfillment of that prophecy. He will oversee the house and the descendants of Jacob. He will reign over the God's kingdom, an everlasting kingdom forevermore. Listen, if you're a believer, this is a part of the Christmas story that we read that we kind of go, yeah, okay, I kind of remember talking about that, the fulfillment of, of the prophecy of the Davidic king, the, you know, and, and, and we kind of move on to the rest of the story. This is a part of the story, listen, we cannot get bored with. We cannot yawn at. This is the hope of humanity that one day a ruler is going to come. A ruler who can be trusted. A ruler who doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. A ruler who doesn't back down and and back away and and backtrack on campaign promises. A, A ruler who will embody mercy. A ruler who will rule and deliver justice without partiality. A ruler who will eye the low and the forgotten. A ruler who will end evil once and for all. And one day gather all of those who have bowed their knee to him as king into a land, into a kingdom. Where there's no more heartache, there's no more pain, there's no more tears. A place of complete rest, of complete peace. That, that's the king. She's hearing the news that she's going to give birth to the son who is going to be that king forevermore. Who will rule over a kingdom of complete peace. Do we not live in a world that, that longs for peace but just can't find it? How are we doing with that? How are we doing at finding peace, right? Seem to find solutions to everything else. Right? We're a very innovative generation. We're more technologically advanced than we've ever been. We're medically advanced than we've ever been. More scientifically advanced than we've ever been. And yet we lack peace more than we ever have. We talk about peace. We create pieces of artwork that communicate we want peace. We sing about peace. John Lennon sang about peace. He sang, imagine a song about peace. And Then you come to find out that he was actually an admitted abuser of women and somebody shot him to death. How are we doing at finding peace? Pass policies for peace and yet for some reason we can't seem to find it. Peace is hard to find on the macro level. Peace is hard to find on the personal level. I don't have to pry too hard for us all to agree with that. Just look inside of our homes. Look inside of our relationships. Look inside of the relationships that you're, that you're kind of like dreading that you're going to have to uh, you know, deal with in a few weeks. You have to share a punch bowl with somebody and cut turkey from, from the same turkey with somebody you can't stand, you can't forgive, somebody you've got a relational strife with. Look inside of our marriages, look inside of our hearts. Right? I'm not just talking about. A lot of times we talk about Christmas stories and we kind of talk about we're just not finding rest and we're busy and we're going to, you know, uh, you know, functions here and parties here. I, I, like this story is real. This story is raw. It doesn't hold back. And so let's get real. 
Some of you know how difficult it is to find peace. Maybe you're in the middle of a marriage and you're struggling to find peace. Divorce rates have spiked this past year. A lot of anxiety and depression. Over 19% of U.S. adults had anxiety order disorders within the last year. Over 31% adults experience an anxiety disorder or have experienced an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. Over 19 million adults have had at least one major depressive episode in the last calendar year. In the past six months, 30 million people have quit their jobs, many stating that they, they just can't seem to make sense of what's going on in their life right now and in the world. They feel like they're watching a movie of their life and there's nothing on the screen. An increased number of suicides and attempted suicides over this last year. A lot of these, and we need to be in prayer, happen between Thanksgiving and Christmas. People longing for peace. Don't have time to dive down into all those different areas, into those specific issues. And I want you to know if you're dealing with something there, we want you to know that we're a church that sees you and hears you and loves you. And want to, we want to help you. We want to pray for you. We want to, listen, we want to lift you up. We want to pull you in. We, want to, we don't want to push you down and out. That's what the world does. Jesus lifts us up and pulls us in. And so we want to be a church here that is a place for you to work through those issues. But generally speaking, all of those things are indicative of, of just a world that is searching for peace and turning to things in the world to find peace and to find joy and to find hope that you're not going to find in the world. You say, well, why? Because it's not found in substances. It's not like, joy and hope and satisfaction and peace isn't found in more money. You know that. It's not found in more pleasure. It's not found in more education. It's not found in philosophy. It's not found through that promotion that you think if you had, you would be happier. It's not found through the relationship that you feel if you had, it would complete you. It's not found. As great as medication and doctors can be and therapy can be at different times and counseling. Ultimately, the peace that we need in our lives comes from somewhere that's outside of this world and outside of ourselves, a a, a place transcendent. Namely, we need peace from God himself. It's the only place we can find peace. That's what Christmas is about. God sending his son into this world, born of a virgin to bring peace to weary, restless people. Specifically first to bring enemies of God at peace with God. Reconciled with their father, their sins forgiven, to where you go from an enemy of God and through the blood of Jesus Christ by throwing the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you, you, you get peace with God. You step into the family of God. When you get peace with God, then you can walk through the rest of your life, experience the peace of God. And you can experience the peace of God knowing that one day you live in the forever kingdom of God ruled by the son of God who will one day, one day sit down on the throne of David and bring shalom to the earth and his kingdom will have no end. If you, if you know Jesus, you belong to that victorious kingdom. If you know Jesus, you belong to the kingdom of the king who was born 2,000 years ago and will and has ascended to the right hand of the Father and will one day return. That is in your future. It may be before this sermon gets done with. One day Jesus will return. Our victorious king will come down back out of heaven, will split the sky open, his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives, he'll walk across the Kidron Valley, he'll bust through the eastern gate that the Muslims have tried to pathetically seal up, and he'll sit down on the throne of David and he will rule forevermore. And Joel says this, when he sits down on that throne, he'll restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. You know what that means? 
If you know Jesus, it's not just that your sins are forgiven and you get a ticket to heaven. You will get back everything multiplied to you, everything this world has taken from you. That's not a promise about this life. This life is difficult. But what helps us experience the peace of God is knowing that we have peace with God and knowing that one day we will experience an incredible amount of peace in a kingdom that will never end. And it will make everything that we have to go through worth it. Hey, little Hebrew 14-year-old Mary, that's the son you're bringing into the world. Second, we're going to look at a response, a humble response from a godly servant. Verse 34 says, she looks at the angel and she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, you may be reading this, and when we read through it a few moments ago, if you were here last week, you may be going, what's up with this? Why doesn't she get the remote control? Why didn't she get her mouth muted? Right? Was Gabriel like, was he in a grumpy mood when he was visiting Zechariah? Did he not have his coffee that morning? Is he in a better, do you walk, wake up on the right side of the bed today? No. The doubts are very different. The questions are very different. I'll quote Tim Keller again. He says this, a very helpful quote. He says, some doubt seeks answers. Some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. Listen, God's not afraid of doubt. But he does disprove of certain kind of hearts behind doubts. If you come to God with questions without any hope of a possibility that the God who is above you and his ways are wiser and he's more powerful can somehow give you an answer, that's not the right right way to approach him. That's the way Zechariah approached him. Mary's approaching him with this kind. In other words, Zechariah was saying, I don't believe it, prove it. Mary's approaching him saying, I believe it. How will this happen? How in the world will this happen? In other words, hey, Nazareth, we ain't got a lot, but we got school. I go to science class. I know how things work. How is this going to happen? The angel tells her how it's going to go down in verse 35 and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I love that. That's creation language, creation account language, the Holy Spirit, Spirit hovering over the deep. And then God's speaking miraculously light into existence and it piercing through the darkness. That's what's happening right here in the womb of this mother. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be created to be born with the, uh, and he'll be holy and he'll be the Son of God. Very important. The details here are very significant. So I'm trying to hang on right here and, and track with me. What he's saying is somehow through a supernatural, miraculous act, the eternal Son of God will enter the womb of Mary and enter time and history itself and he'll incarnate himself. Right? Carnate, right? It just means flesh. So incarnate means flesh, incarnate, in flesh or in skin. So he's going to come as flesh and blood. And because of the way he is conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is how he will be holy and set apart, not just a man, the God man. All right, that's, there's two natures, one person, 100% God, 100% man. Difficult to understand. You want a theological word uh, to write down? Um, I just forgot it. Hyperstatic union, there you go. Hypostatic union. There you go. Use that on your friends this week. Impress them. Hypostatic union just simply means the mysterious coming together of God's divinity and humanness in one person, but maintaining his divinity. And here's why this is important. Listen, without the virgin birth, Jesus is only a man. If Jesus had a human father, he's just a man. He may have been a great man. He may have been a great teacher, but just a man. And if he's just a man, there's no gospel. There's no savior. There's no salvation. We'd still be doomed in our sin. You say, why? Well, let's dig down a little further. You want to know why? Because when Adam sinned, our first parent, 
In the garden, a curse was laid on God on all who would be born in his line. You're born in his line. I'm born in his line. It means any human ever born, Romans chapter 5, have inherited a sin nature. All right? If you've been around kids at all, little kids at all, one thing that is very clear to you is you don't have to teach them how to sin. They come out of the package, out of the box, batteries included, ready to roll in rebellion. That's just the way that they work. Our kids are lovely. We teach here. We think they're fearfully and wonderfully made, but they are selfish little rebellious creatures. If you're a new parent, you may not even be doing anything wrong. They're kind of put on this earth for the first few years, I think, to try to kill you, to drive you, just to drive you to the sufficiency of Jesus. I'm kidding. Kind of. Listen, we love our kids. They're precious. They're image bearers, but they're sinners. And here's the thing, and I'm picking on kids because it's easy to shoot fish in a barrel. I got the disease. We're all sons of Adam. It's just the way it is. We're born into sin. The cause of the virgin birth, the son of God bypasses that curse. And because he bypasses that curse, he becomes the perfect human substitute that we need. And he takes the judgment that we deserve. You got that? To take the judgment away, the condemnation that we deserve, he had to be fully man to represent us and fully divine to deliver us. And he was. Now, some of you may get that. See, I'm with you. I believe it. I embrace it. I understand. It's a closed-fisted issue. It's something we don't negotiate about. It's a foundational doctrine. But for some of you, you need to hear this. And I, and I just with the way our, our culture is and the conversations that I have, especially being around young people and talking with them about their faith. Listen, this is not an optional part of the story that you can choose whether or not you're going to believe it. Either the virgin birth is true or Christianity belongs to all the other make-believe stuff in the store. We were in Pigeon Forge, and we were in a souvenir shop. They had an entire corner of a souvenir shop dedicated to Bigfoot. T-shirts, mugs. My wife was over there. She was buying some stuff. She, she's kind of fascinated with Bigfoot, right? Folks, Bigfoot's not real. He's, Rebecca, Bigfoot's not real, all right? Some of y'all are, are interested in that. He's not real. I don't get it. I don't understand it. No, I don't want a Bigfoot T-shirt. I don't want to go on a Bigfoot tour. What are we looking for? Listen, without the virgin birth, put Jesus over in the corner with Bigfoot and Yeti. Some of you say, well, I've kind of studied. I've done my homework, and I kind of know that in this ancient language, sometimes virgin right there meant some people thought that it just meant like as a way to describe a young lady, except for the fact that Mary explicitly says to the angel in the Bible, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Responding to news that she's going to give birth to a son. The Bible is explicitly making the point she's never been with a man. The Bible, what the Bible's doing is it's giving you a challenge. It's inviting you to believe something supernatural. You say, well, I don't like supernatural. I live in the natural. I believe in the natural. I'm sticking with the natural. Then you're stuck with a string of efforts to find meaning and purpose and eternal life and peace in this world through peace treaties and songs about peace and John Lennon songs and feel-good messages and Christmas movies about Buddy finding his dad and a bunch of stuff in the world that we all know is empty and doesn't work. We better hope something supernatural can happen. You better hope something outside this fallen world, outside your broken life is breaking in to help you and rescue you and make things right and to give you eternal life. And here's the truth, it has. But it takes faith to believe it. Listen, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, it's probably because you don't believe in miracles at all. And if that's the case, you can't be a Christian. Every major tenet of the Christian faith is founded on a miracle. Creation's a miracle. The virgin birth is a miracle. Substitutionary atonement's a miracle. 
The resurrection's a miracle. Ascension's a miracle. The ascension's a miracle. Jesus coming back to rescue us and to rule on the throne of David and to make everything right and establish new heavens and a new earth. It's all a miracle. All miracles that fit perfectly together. Each one, all of them, you are embracing by faith. And you try to remove one, it's like removing that weight-bearing little block at the bottom of the Jenga tower. It all comes tumbling down. You take away the virgin birth, you have nothing. You don't have, a son, you don't have the Son of God, which means the cross is meaningless, which means there's another explanation for why the tomb is empty. But with it, and because it's true, you have everything. And it's the most glorious news that the world has ever heard. And it's truth. The son of God has come and is able to rescue you from your enemy, from your sins, from hell and give you life. But to be rescued, it takes embracing all of it with a heart of faith. Hey, even though you may not understand how all of it works. It doesn't require that you understand it. It requires that you believe it. Is Mary not a great example of that kind of faith? There's a lot about what God's telling her. There's a lot as she's trying to connect the dots. There's a lot she wouldn't understand that wouldn't have made rational sense to her. She knows some. Everybody wants to debate. Twitter and Facebook going to war again. Mary, did she know? What did she know? Mary, did you know? Yeah, and no. She, she knew some and she probably didn't know a lot. And there's a lot that probably didn't make rational sense to her. And yet what we learn from her, here it is. From this ordinary 14-year-old Hebrew girl. What do we learn? That she was able to reach a simple, humble posture of faith in the face of challenging things to believe, challenging truths to hear, a humble posture of faith and saying, I'm small, I'm human, you're God, I'm not, I'm yours. Verse 6 36 and 37, the angel says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her. Don't the Holy Spirit encourages us. God encourages us, moves us forward in faith. Who was called barren. They used to mark her life, but not anymore for nothing will be impossible with God. He's telling Mary, another barren womb has been given life. Mary, you're young. I know this is a lot, but a miracle has already been done that will be done with you for nothing is impossible with God. And with all of her questions, that's all she needed to hear. To put her in her posture of faith, to say, I'm small, I'm human, you're God, you're wise, you're powerful. I'm not, I'm yours. Verse 38, the way Mary says it is like this. She said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, what an example of faith. That's the way I want to end. A lot of theology put out there this morning, a lot to take in. And I just really want to end by you just thinking on and reflecting on this incredible example of what it looks like to walk by faith. That's, if you're a young person here, I get the privilege of waking up and looking into the face of a 14-year-old girl every day, my daughter, who I love so much. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Mary to be in that situation. And how glorious it is and how wonderful it is that God knew he could come to even a teenager and trust that she would take a posture of faith and move forward in faith and trust him and surrender to him and worship him the way that she would. That's That's a great example for young people here today. 
The world tells you spend this part of your life living it up, pushing the boundaries, and yet you are missing that the most important window arguably of your life is what decisions that you'll make between the ages of 18 and 22. And you're positioning yourself to make good decisions in that window by the way you're living in your teenage years and in your preteen years. Let Mary be an example of Example to you of what it looks like for a young person to be able to walk in a posture of faith and surrender in obedience to God. What an example of faith this looks like to young people, to those who are old. It's an example that may encourage some of you who are taking your first steps towards following Christ this morning. Because you got questions. I mean, she had questions. You got uncertainties. She had uncertainties. You got doubts. You know, that also reminds me of another guy I mentioned earlier in the service, Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, he had some doubts. He heard Jesus from Nazareth and was like, I got some questions. And you know what Philip said? He didn't say, hey, let me sit down and let's answer those questions in order for you to go to Christ. He said, no, you bring them. You take steps of faith and you come with me and you encounter him and you meet him. And it doesn't mean all of his questions were answered that day, but they took a backseat in view of encountering this king. So with your questions, I mean, bring them to him. Step out in faith. Believe the gospel and repent of your sins. And Mary shows us what it looks like really for any of us who are following Jesus. A great example of following Christ. Because we often wander. Do we not let, and some of you are here this morning, you let circumstances, you let uncertainties, you let fears, you let doubts distract you. Listen, from living a life of faith and surrender and obedience. Maybe in some specific area of your life. What is that area for you? An area where it may cost you something to step forward with obedience. An area where it's difficult for you to move forward because sometimes you wonder if God could really move, going back to last week's message, and do something that seems impossible. There's a lot on her mind, man. There's a lot on the line for her to step forward in obedience, and she is not unaware of those things. She's not living with her head in the clouds. She understands what it will cost her. She understands that it'll probably cost her her betrothal, her marriage. We know what happens in the moment she doesn't. I mean, who's going to believe her? Really, how's that conversation going to go down? Hey, Joseph, good news and bad news. Good news, I'm pregnant. Bad news, I'm pregnant. Wait, what? I'm pregnant, but it's God's. What? Wait, what? I'm pregnant, but it's God's baby. Oh, really? We're going to go with that story, huh? I mean, I knew you were kind of a little crazy, but you were kind of attractive, so I overlooked the crazy. Now you're really crazy, so the the craziness is overcoming the attractiveness. I'm out. Peace out. I'm going to divorce you. At worst, he could have actually used the law to his advantage and killed her. She knows what could be ahead. She's human like us. She doesn't know what it is, but she knows what it very likely could be. Death, divorce, shame. No husband would mean she's going to be homeless. Would mean she's shunned in her community. The talk of the town, that's just the beginning. She isn't, isn't unaware of what it'll cost her to follow God, but she doesn't let fear control her, and she leaves all the what-ifs in his hands. Have you taken all the what-ifs, all the doubts, and have you placed them in God's hands? God can handle the what ifs of your consequences of the what ifs of your obedience. Here I am. In so many ways, her response, does it remind you of another response? Of Jesus in the garden? Who's thinking about all the things that he's about to do? Absorbing the wrath of God in himself and bearing the sins of mankind? And with all that in mind, what does he do? Not my will 
but yours be done. That's what Mary's doing. And like Jesus, she chooses to move forward, to live a life of faith and surrender and worship. Does that describe your life this morning? She could have focused the magnifying glass of her heart on a thousand other things. She simply focuses it on Jesus. Focuses it on the gospel. Focuses it on the truth that God has found favor with her. And that he's sovereign and powerful and he can be trusted. Matthew Henry said, though we do not pray to Mary, we ought to praise God for her. Let's pray.